Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. <laughs> Gone with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. You gotta, you gotta understand, kids are kids are kids are kids. So if we were into rock and roll here, mm-hmm. they were in the UK as well. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network for a brand new year. I'm Joe Burns. You are? Tammy Burns. 2023, honey. Sounds I, uh, weird, huh? It does. It it, it does. I, I would like to make the joke that I'm going to screw up a lot of checks, but who writes checks anymore? Well, you do. I know. You know what? The high school here, my kids are still in high school, they want checks. You couldn't set up a Venmo? I know. Lazy. I know. So so I have the checks, and of course, because I can't just take regular checks, I have to go buy those fancy checks off of whatever website it is. So our checks have, like, staffs of music on them. That's gorgeous. And the wrong address, I do believe, right? No, they did the wrong address. And you know what? No, money keeps coming out of my account. I know. But no one has said, hey, this isn't where you live, (laughs) Not that they care. Anywho, we're going to do these first two days, first two shows, if you will, of the brand new year, 2023. We call them the Cocktail Hour Show. That was coined by Beth West. And what it is, is we just simply go back 10 years and 10 years and 10 years and talk about the historical music items that will be brought up this year. So as you're watching the news and they talk about something, did you know this happened? And you can say, yes, of course I knew it happened because I listened to rock school. However, there's one little caveat of this. I'm going to guess this is the last time we do this. Oh, yeah. Why? The reason is this is how long the show's been on the air. Uh Uh-oh. I believe if I did the mathematicals correctly, this is the 10th year that we've done this or maybe it's the ninth year I I don't remember but what it was is we're to the point where if we do it again it would be the ninth year if we do it again we'll begin repeating shows oh no and I'm not a fan of repeating shows it ain't so so at the top of the year 2024 if we're both still alive and the show's still on the Mm -hmm. air we will probably have to find something new to do so let's talk about the year 2023, and we'll go back as far as I could get it. I got back to all the way 1833. That's 190 years ago. Crazy, isn't it? How many websites did I go to? God Rest You Merry Gentlemen becomes a song finally written down. It was sold as number 394 in the Roud Folk Song Index, and because of that, becomes one of the most popular tunes of the year. You gotta know, back then there was no recording, so you had to buy sheet music and perform it. 
But you see, the song is from the mid-1600s. It was talked about in some Dickens stories, uh -huh. so people knew it already. Right. Let's go back 180 years. Now, this is extremely self-serving. 1843, the euphonium. That's that little miniature tuba. The euphonium is invented by Erdinand Summer of Weimar. Why have we stopped putting the of at the end of names? <laughs> I am Joseph Evan Burns of Hammond. I like dun, it. Dun, dun. What this guy wanted was a transportable version of the serpent, which was a very long instrument. It, it kind of looked like that thing in the Ricola commercial, yeah. except it was bent and twisted. Nice. Okay. Uh, why do I care about the euphonium? My son tried out on the euphonium. He made multiple district bands. He tried out for the state band, fell slightly short. And when he goes to college, he will probably get his degree in euphonium. So there you go. All right, let's go back uh, 170 years. 1853, My Old Kentucky Home by Stephen Foster is the top sheet music of the year. But here's the one I want to talk to you about. In 1853, I'll just ask you, what do you think is the number one seller of pianos? What's the brand? As soon as I say it, you're going to know it. Ah, uh, Baldwin. Oh, close. Steinway. Ooh. Yeah. Well, it got underway. An American-German piano company founded by Heinrich Steinweg, which became Steinway, opened up in Queens first and now is in Manhattan. By the way, a brand new Steinway is going to run you 75 to 90K, depending on which Woo. one you buy. Woohoo! Okay. 140 years ago, 1833, pardon me, 1883, the opening of the first Metropolitan Opera House. Nice. To which you say, you mean the Met? Not the Met you're thinking of. The Metropolitan Opera House opened on Broadway and 39th, if you know anything about New York City. That's not the one you think of when you hear about somebody at the Met. The one that you're probably thinking of is right now on 39th and Broadway. It's got the big pillars and the glass front and such. That opened in 1966. However, the Met... The original opened in 1883. And the one uh, from 1883 I'm interested in, the Gretsch Company. Starts up, manufacture of guitars, banjos, and drums. It opened up in Brooklyn, New York. Drums? Here's the thing. Mm -hmm. One of the Gretsch Company's earliest drum kits was known as the Broadcaster. So when Leo Fender in California started his guitar-making company, he took this specific guitar design and called it the Broadcaster. When it came out, Gretsch went bonkers. Hey, man, no, no, no. We already have the Broadcaster. Right, right. And so he had, he, less, uh, not less Paul, the, the, the Fender. Leo Fender, Leo mm -hmm. Fender, had to change the name of it. There is a, a year where he didn't put a name on it at all, and it's called the No-Caster, and those are unbelievably collectible. However, it was the next year when the actual name was put to it, and that's the Telecaster. There you go. 1893, 
This is the first year, by the way, this is 130 years ago. This is the first year that a chart or a listing, depending on how you want to use it, either it's a chart or a listing, which is what they called it back then, there was a recorded popular music chart. Now, there is a current uh, record label card, the Archeophone, A-R-C-H-E-O phone, as in archive, Archeophone. They are preserving these old records. Very few actually exist. However, this is the first year where the idea of purchasing a cylinder piece of music from the Edison Corporation or whomever was ripping him off at the time came out. And if you wanted to buy the big ones of the year, the Washington Post March was huge, and the cat came back from George H. Diamond were the top songs. You see, at the time, there were sheet music charts because you had to play music yourself. Right. Now we finally, in 1893, are starting to categorize recorded music. And if you want to see what I'm talking about in terms of cylinder, go and look up uh, the Edison original music player. You'll see what I'm talking about. They didn't use records like a flat record. What they used was a, a tube basically. And so it turned like a roll of toilet paper. And so that's you, you, how it was you done. You didn't get a lot of uh, songs. Well, you got one, maybe two, if you right. could get them on that. I, I believe those could hold about three minutes of music. So if you could do two minute, 30 songs, you could get it on there. But I actually own three packages because it's the packaging that's the most expensive. Mm -hmm. I own three packagings and two of the, what do you call it, the uh, the actual Cylinder? discs, the actual cylinders. Mm -hmm. The reason is I used to take the cylinders to my audio class to show the kids what happened. Right. I was walking away and dropped it. <gasps> when you hear the phrase exploded into a thousand pieces, that's what it is. It was well over a hundred years old you, when I dropped it. You never told me this. I just have an empty box, and then I have two, and they never leave Oh, my, my office. gosh. All right, we got to get around to actually playing something. 1903. This is 120 years ago. The Victor Talking Machine Company, which was sold to the public as His Master's Voice. Do you know the real famous RCA logo of a dog? Oh, yeah. Looking into basically the sound horn uh -huh. of a player. Yeah. Uh, that got started pressing and releasing music. Their number one seller was Enrico Caruso, opera singer. And here's the one we're going to play. We will twice during today's show talk about the blues. And when you talk about the blues, it's fun to get historical and say, now, wait a minute, what was the first of what have you? Well, in 1903, Mississippi John Hurt begins performing. Born in Carroll County, Mississippi, raised in Avalon, Mississippi, he is arguably the beginning of the Delta blues. Now, some will argue for Sunhouse. Some will argue for Tommy Johnson. Some will argue for Big Joe Williams. There's also Freddie Spruell, who was the first recorded with Melt Cow Blues, but it couldn't have been him. So it's a good argument. But since Mississippi John Hurt is coming up this year, 
it's entirely possible he is the beginning of what we consider the Delta Blues. I doubt he called it that. He was just the person who created the format, the chordal progression, and what was followed. It sure wasn't Robert Johnson. But Robert Johnson owes a good bit of himself to Mississippi John Hurt. So this is him on Rock School. Talking about the year 2023, this is our cocktail show where you can walk away with tons of stuff to talk to your friends about. They will either go, wow, that's cool, or stop talking. Let's go back 110 years, 1913, the Edison Diamond Disc Record was introduced. Edison almost immediately goes to the flat records because German companies started going to the flat records. It was easier for them to have, well, number one, two songs. Or you could have four, two on one side and two on the other. It, it easily defeated the cylinder. So he goes to it. However, it's Edison, and he knows he's up against all of these companies that exist already. So his selling point was instead of a wooden stick that went down into the record, and the selling point of the wooden stick was that you could sharpen it and sharpen it and sharpen it. Wow. He decided to put out a player that had a chip of a diamond. It would cut into the record. It still does today. I know, and, and he invented that, huh? That's right. Well, oh. I, I mean, I don't know that he invented it. Edison kind of didn't invent a lot of stuff. Ask Tesla. However, not not Elon Musk Tesla, the actual Tesla. However, the selling point was that once you bought it, you never had to buy another one. Also in 1913, Louis Armstrong begins playing the coronet. It is his first recorded concert in his New Orleans home for colored waifs. Don't get angry at me. That was the name of the place he was in. This was, remember, 1913. It was a different time. Also in 1913, the word jazz appears in print for the first time. And by the way, if you really want to go, geez, that's a that's a history. Look up the epistemology of the word jazz. It started as J-A-S-S. I'm not going to go further into it, but it was a, how do you say it? It was a dirty term. Dirty word, It was right? a dirty word at the time. That's how it was done in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. The reason it became J-A-Z-Z was because when the music started to be played in, quote, reputable places, they knew what J-A-S or J-A-S-S -S meant. 
so they misspelled it on purpose, and it became J-A-Z-Z. There you go. Now, back to 1923. Okay, here we go with more fights. More fights. There is an explosion in 1923, 100 years ago, of African-American musicians recording. Bessie Smith records for Columbia, Ida Cox for OK, Joe King, Oliver, and Louis Armstrong for Milestone, Jelly Roll Morton for Victor. Now, here's the question. The first to go to number one, we already know, is Bessie Smith. She had a song called Downhearted Blues. The thing about Bessie Smith is it's her name along with W.C. Handy and Ma Rainey. Uh One of those three was the first to attach the term blues to that kind of music. Right. Most people say Ma Rainey, but there's a real good chance that it was Bessie Smith who toured with her. The idea of the blues, there was all of these things called the blue laws. And what they were were laws where you were doing something wrong. You were drinking, you were smoking, you were what have you, prostitution. They were called the blue laws. And so blue was sort of related with doing something wrong and feeling bad. A little nasty, huh? Right. And this type of music had what was known as a flatted third or the blue note. So what it was was instead of do, re, mi, it was do, re, mi. That's the blue note. Somewhere in amongst all of it, it became known as the blues. Yes, 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 historians, I know there's more to it. But you got to admit, that's a pretty good little recap. And the one we're going to play, also 1923, 100 years ago, February of that year, Joseph Samuel's Tampa Blue Jazz Band records the George Washington Thomas song, The Fives, for OK Records. Okay, what do we care? It's the first song, and anytime you say first, you gotta wink. It's the first song to be termed Boogie Woogie. Now, where did Boogie Woogie come from? Once again, great fight. It's either multiple African language words that meant beat or perform or dance. All you got to do is look up Boogie Woogie epistemology and it'll show you all of these. I mean, I could say them, but they're, they don't sound like, you know, Boogie Woogie. Or, and this is the one I kind of buy, um, booger was a way of, of, and it didn't mean the thing out of your nose. It was a way to keep beat. And in Texas, specifically Blind Lemon Jefferson, he called rent parties, meaning I needed to pay my rent, so you hire a musician, charge everybody five bucks to get in. Those things were called a booger-rooger. And it was a dance party. Yes. People came over, gave you some money, you gave them some booze, and the music had to be up and happening and good. And that was called a booger-rooger. Again, look up up Blind Lemon Jefferson. He's got songs. And the one line I remember is, my feet done failed me once. And that was last week at that booger-rooger, which was a house party. That's where I think the term boogie-woogie came from. 
why did we stop doing? Me. Why did we stop doing house parties like that? I don't know. It's a great idea. Cops. I don't know. So here is that supposed first example of boogie woogie, the Fives, by Joseph Samuels Tampa Blue Jazz Band for OK Records here on Rock School. Coming into the first break, let's talk about the year 1933. That is 90 years ago from this new year, 2023. John Jacob Niles attended an Appalachia tent meeting. You know, the religious groups would show up, set up a tent. Yeah, it's a revival. Right, do everything they could to make a little bit of money, pack it all up, and bing, off to the next town. Amen. There was a little girl, according to John Jacob Niles, who was set up on a little wooden stage, and if you fed her quarters, she would sing to you. Huh. And apparently the melody, because he kept feeding her quarters, going, that is a great melody. The melody was something to the effect of bum 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 bum. I wonder as I wander out under Right. That is supposedly where I wonder as I wander came forth. My gosh. Yeah, how about that? And also in 1993, Billie Holiday, one of the first women of true jazz blues, was discovered. Holiday was replacing singer Monette Moore at Coven's Club on West 132nd Street. She wasn't supposed to be there that night. Well, producer John Hammond, who basically brought the blues to the world... He was the guy that would, uh, he found Robert Johnson and, and basically recorded all these people. He sat down because he wanted to hear Monette Moore. Well, guess what? There's Billie Holiday. He records her later on and she goes to the charts with the song, Your Mother's Son-in-Law. Ooh, nice. There you go. Who's listening to us? ROX Network, Rock. Network.co.uk. By the way, spell that rocks R O X. R O X. Yeah. Back in a minute here in Rock School. Okay, coming out of the break, let's talk about 1943. That's 80 years ago from this year. I may break this into two different breaks because there's a lot of stuff on here. First of all, did you know there was a Pulitzer Prize for music? 
Uh, no, I did not. Well, there is, and the very first one is handed out this year. William Schumann's Cantata, A Free Song. Remember that? I was whistling that on the way in today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And by the way, I'm thinking seriously about doing an entire show on it because I had never heard there was such a thing as a Pulitzer Prize for music. What do you have to do to win it? I apparently have to know the Pulitzer family. No, uh, I don't know. What? I don't know anything. Okay, good. So I went and looked it up, and what's wonderful about it is not that, oh, you've won and all of that. It's the fact that people hate it. Oh, they're, they're just picking songs like this and all that kind of stuff. It's beautifully petty, which means it will make a fantastic show. I like so it. I'm thinking about doing that. Okay, November 14th, Leonard Bernstein. Remember him? He substitutes at the last minute for a principal conductor who is sick, Bruno Walter, and directs the New York Philharmonic on its regular Sunday afternoon broadcast concert on CBS. The events cover this because apparently it was the best that had ever been done. Look, this is history being written. Mm -hmm. I highly doubt that this guy, what was his name, Bruno Walter, was just poo-poo. Yeah. And then in comes Leonard Bernstein and, oh my gosh, people are playing the right notes. I get the feeling it's a little bit more than that, but man, the idea of history has to be written in adorable little packets so we can teach it to 10th graders. There you go. You know what I mean? Amen. Okay. Now we're going to talk about what we're probably going to play. September 27th, 1943, once again, 80 years ago, Decca Records is the first label to come to terms with the American Federation of Musicians. So what? Here's what happened, and it's almost unbelievable or inconceivable. I don't think you know what that word means. It is almost inconceivable that the Federation of Musicians would do this. But during World War II, they didn't feel they were getting enough money, so they struck. Mm. They went on strike. Right. And it, even it, it got to the point where even the president... FDR stepped forward and said, knock this off. Yeah, not now. America needs music. Uh-huh. But here's the thing. When I lectured on this, and I did an entire thing on it, I said, if you want to blame Justin Bieber on anybody, blame it on Hitler. Because the singer is the thing that came out of this strike. Let me tell you. Big band music, the 17 to 22 person orchestra and the the orchestras they had touring around during the war were anywhere between 35 and 50 people. Oh, that's a lot, huh? <coughs> Woo. But what they were were dance bands. And to be honest, the singer was at best window dressing. They'd bring out a pretty girl now and again or a handsome guy now and again. But it was so window dressing that during that 1940 to 1942 strike, the musicians who were the singers weren't involved in the strike. Hmm. They were so who cares that as a singer, nobody cared. 
Really? So, was there just no new music being put out during the strike? Well, yeah, some little record companies, like in Chicago, they decided not to do it, which is why I think bebop jazz, which is difficult to listen to. You gotta really want to listen to bebop jazz. The reason it became popular was because it was out. The Chicago uh, record label that handled it didn't get into the into the strike. So all this bebop jazz comes out. Now the world knows Dizzy Gillespie and all of his equals at the time. However, the major companies, the Capitals, the OKs and all of that, what they did was record a cappella music. The idea of no, nothing but voice, no instruments, no musicians past the singers. And they had hits and they didn't affect the strike. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but I don't like it. I don't either. The first song recorded over the music royalty concerns was Pistol Pack and Mama by Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters. Now look, if you know this history, I know you can argue with me. I get it. It's generally believed it's Pistol Pack and Mama. But again, it, it, it used to be that nobody cared about singers. However, the singers began doing everything a cappella, and a couple people really benefited from it. Number one, obviously, was Bing Crosby, obviously the Andrews sisters, but there was another guy who we're going to talk about in the next break and play who really benefited from it. Here's Bing Crosby and the Andrews sisters on Rockstar. Lay that pistol down, babe, lay that pistol down. Pistol packin' mama, lay that pistol down. Oh, drinkin' beer in a cabaret, was I having fun? Until one night she caught me round. Lay that pistol down. Coming out of Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters. Now, some of you might have heard that and said, now, wait a minute, there were instruments in that. You're correct. I said this was the first song after the strike. But the reason it had singing was because during the strike, the singers weren't involved. They were just window dressing for these bands. But the audience over those two years became used to having a singer. Wow. And so that's where it came from. Once again, if you want to blame Justin Bieber or you know, on someone. Blame Hitler. Uh, also in 1943, June 17th, Perry Como signs up with RCA. Duke Ellington's orchestra performs for the first time at Carnegie Hall. Tammy, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Uh, you pay somebody. Practice, practice, practice. Oh, uh, wrong joke. Yeah, the concert was for war relief, and that was really something to have Duke Ellington's orchestra there. You can probably, you know, figure out why here's the other thing in 43 that is so cool and has such a wide reaching element in the world of music frank sinatra who by the way is the guy that i was talking about when i said bing crosby benefited from the strike andrew sisters who was the other guy bing crosby is you know was at the time big but he fell away and here comes Frank Sinatra. What was it about Frank Sinatra? 
Well, he wasn't Justin Bieber, but he was young, handsome, blue eyes. talented, screaming blue eyes. He puts on a concert at the Paramount Theater and a mob of hysterical Bobby Soxers flood Times Square, blocking Midtown traffic for hours. It hours. was it was nothing ah. like anyone had ever seen. Some people point to this as sort of the original idea for the rock concert. Uh-huh. Now, what was a Bobby Soxer? Well, in the same way today as young 13 to 16-year-old girls are just wacky about music, mm-hmm. that's what these girls were. They were called Bobby Soxers because what they would do is wear their little Mary Jane shoes and they would have, you know, the longer skirts down. You can find these pictures by just doing a googly search. They would wear the the dresses down to or past the knee. And then they wore those long, tall uh, socks. Yeah. And they would either crunch them down or they would roll them down so it looks like they had a donut around the top oh, of their shoe. Oh, this was so wrong because they were showing their legs. That Well, that was the point. It was, it was sinful. Right. By today's standards, it's a who cares. But back then, young lady, they can see your calves. Yes, yes mom, they can. They can. They so, can, mom. But the thing that, that extends, a lot of people will look at the Beatles and they will see these girls screaming and passing out and all of that. That didn't start with the Beatles. That started with Frank Sinatra. And the thing is, it was a ploy. These girls, or some of the girls, were paid to scream and yell and lose their minds. It used to be if you were in a music audience, you sat still, tapped your foot, bobbed your head, and then when it was over, when the orchestra gave you a good bang to let you know when to you know to clap, right. you went... Yay. So who's paying them? Columbia Records, the person who's putting out Frank Sinatra. Oh. And the story goes, if you read about it, it's really wonderful. The story goes they only needed to pay about 25, 30 girls. They would lead the crowd? Is that right. what happened? And every other girl just picked it up. And so when you see girls going, Wah! and fainting at mm-hmm. the Beatles, didn't start with the Beatles. started with Frank Sinatra. On Rock School. And when I told them how beautiful you are, they didn't believe me. Then me. Okay, coming into the second break, let's go back 70 years from this new year, 2023. So we're in 1953. The Platters form and begin recording in Los Angeles. Here's the thing. Have you ever heard the phrase, I know I've said it on this show, if it doesn't happen here in America, it didn't happen. The song that stayed at number one for the longest time. Do you know the song, You Blown It All Sky High? Yeah. Yes. It sat at number one for three months. To which you say, no, it didn't. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a good tune. I don't even think it hit number one here. Well, I'm not talking about here. 
It did it in Japan. Oh. Once again, if it didn't happen here, bleh. A singer, Frankie Lane, who, by the way, was an American. You got you to gotta understand, kids are kids are kids are kids. So if we were into rock and roll here, uh-huh. they were in the UK as well. They were always a little behind because of the BBC after the war needing content. To which you say, you know, how did the Rolling Stones learn about all of this blues music? Well, blues music was being worked with by BMI, not ASCAP. BMI was this little upstart company. And they could purchase, they, the BBC, could purchase all of this Delta Blues music cheap. Cheap, cheap, cheap. Right. That's how, the, 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 not the King Biscuit Flower Hour, mm-hmm. but the King Biscuit Hour, King Biscuit Show, something like that. King Biscuit Flower Hour was a TV show, but they based it on the King Biscuit Show. I don't remember. It's something like that. King Biscuit, by the way, is a flower. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's good biscuits. It, yeah. And they were running that. That's how they learned about all of this uh-huh. stuff. But anyway, an American named Frankie Lane in 1953 sets what is still the all-time United Kingdom record for weeks at number one in a given year. The singles Answer Me, Hey Joe, and I Believe held the top slot for 27 weeks. Oh, that's painful. That's a little, was that over 5227? Yeah, that's a little more than half a year. Oh my gosh. I Believe was number one for 18 weeks. Also holds the all-time record for a single. We don't like music that much. Well, here's the thing. Uh Uh-huh. Did it happen here? No, it didn't. It did not. So... We don't know about it. Who's listening to us? Let me slow down. W-W-N-W. Oh, you said it right. Westminster College. Huzzah. New, uh, where, where's it at? New Wilmington. It's where I got my undergrad. Oh, that's where it is. New Wilmington, Pennsylvania. There you go. And by the way, they run the show blatantly. Hi, Gary. Hi, Mr. Barner, who, by the way, is now Dr. Barner. Yes, he is. He, he's my mentor. There's no two ways about it. If you know Your father has the most sway in your existence, I can tell you who's number two in my world. Uh, Dave Barner. Yes, it is. Dave Barner. Not Aww. a question. Back in a minute here on Rock School. Okay, coming out of the second break, let's continue with 1953. 70 years ago. Crazy Man Crazy, recorded by Bill Haley and his Comets, becomes the first rock and roll single to make the Billboard National American Music Charts. You see, this is the thing. When you start talking about what was the first rock and roll record, the question becomes, do you mean the first record that conformed to rock and roll musical stylings, or do you mean the first popular record? A lot of people run to rock around the clock, which wasn't even Bill Haley and the Comets. It was Sunny Day and the Nights. Bill Haley just redid it. When you're talking about rock and roll, there is an argument to be made that the first national rock and roll hit was Bill Haley's Crazy Man Crazy. Mm. Okay? Again, I know you can argue with me. I do, I do, I do. Also in 1953, July 18th, Elvis Presley does his first 
Sun Recordings. Now, I know what you're thinking. He goes into the studio. They create a single. They send it out. Uh, 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 that's not what happened. On June 18th of that year, what he did was make a recording. I, I've read that it was for his mother. I've read that it was attempting to get some recognition from Sam Phillips. But he followed this thing where you go in and I think it's four dollars. And you record. Yeah. And they cut you a record and you left with a record. It was a cutesy thing to do. It was a way to make some extra money. Right. He recorded two songs, My Happiness, and That's Where Your Heartache Begins. That is, and I know what you're going to say. No, I thought it was my old Kentucky home. Or it's, a, mm, it's believed these are the first two recordings. And Jack White of the White Stripes and mm-hmm. now thing, he owns... That 45. Get out. Right. It was being sold by the Presley family to raise some money. You got to remember, there was a time where Graceland was in real trouble. Right. Real trouble. Yep. yep. And he is the one that got it. If I read it correctly, he bought it for $330,000. Here's my question Did he ever play it? Or would that have hurt it? Or maybe he was walking across campus and he just dropped it and it yeah. fell into a million pieces. thousand huh? pieces, right. <laughs> I, I have an original 37, 1937 recording of I Believe I'll Dust My Broom by Robert Johnson. And a friend of mine who is a record collector says, you got to play it, man. There's ghosts in those grooves. And the thing is, I won't play it. I'm afraid of hurting it by playing it. You know, maybe just one time. You know? huh? I don't know. Uh, also, April of 1953, Pat Boone begins his recording career at Republic Records. He started as just a regular singer until this idea of whitewashing mm-hmm. came around, and then he became. And I don't think it's anything he set out to do. But it's interesting that Crazy Man Crazy goes to number one and becomes the first national that same year because Bill Haley was also a whitewasher. Uh What it would be is an African-American artist like Big Bill Brunzi would create a song. Get out in that kitchen and rattle them pots and pans. Good song. But it's by an African-American so what the record companies did was go out and find squeaky clean white artists like Bill Haley, and he re-recorded it. Pat Boone became kind of the poster child of this, but look, we've done a show on it. Go look at it. It's selu.edu or southeastern.edu slash rockschool. It was done by many artists over many African peop- African-American people. The thing is, it's Pat Boone. That really is the poster child for it. So, for your listening displeasure, here's Pat Boone and Tutti Frutti on Rock School. Tutti Frutti, all Rudy. Tutti Frutti, all Rudy. Tutti Frutti, all Okay, stop, stop. I, I can't do that to you. Here's little Richard. Oh, wow. 
Coming into the last break, let's start the year 1963. We won't complete it, but let's start the year 1963. That is 60 years back. On August 30th, Phillips. Did you have a lot of Phillips audio equipment? Yes. It was kind of the cheaper thing. Yes. Uh, Phillips introduces the Musica cassette at the Berlin. I'm going to try to do it. it. It's German, and it means music exhibition, but Funkostellung. Funkostellung. I was going to laugh out loud bum, right ba-dum, there. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. But anyway, it means music exhibition. So look, it was all the way back in 1963 that you could do a cassette, mm-hmm. which was basically a self-contained reel-to-reel. Sweet. That's all it is. August 3rd, the Beatles perform at the Cavern Club in Liverpool for the final time. You know, I should have bought the brick. I don't know why I didn't. They were When they revamped it, all the bricks that you see around the Beatles when they perform, you see the pictures of them there? Yeah. They sold all those bricks. You know what? What? Buy one from me. I've got a brick, I'll sell you. <laughs> Just go get me a brick. Yeah. yeah. Uh, June 7th, the Rolling Stones' first single, a cover of Chuck Berry's Come On, is released in the UK and reaches 21. You want to hear it? Here's about 10 seconds of it. Oh, there you go. And the one we're going to play. I, 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 I put this one in there, obviously, because it's Bob Dylan. But I got to be honest with you. I, I can't even fathom something like this happening today. And I can tell you two times when it did happen. Mm-hmm. The Free Will and Bob Dylan comes out in May of 1963. It's his second album, and people lost their mind over it basically because of the song Blowing in the Wind. Mm-hmm. When you think Bob Dylan, a lot of people go immediately to Blowing in the Wind. It could very well be the signature song of him. It was released as a single in May by who? Who do you think released it as a single? Uh, I have no idea. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, now, wait a minute. Why wasn't it released by Bob Dylan? Huh. I, I don't understand it. And I don't have an answer for you. They put it out in May. It then came out in June by Dylan himself in August. That is so weird. And you say, well, I, I know of another time. What was that other time? Uh, the big, why can't I come up with his name? That's all right, Mama. Um, big Mama Thornton? Roy, oh, geez, no, it's not Big Mama Thornton. Um, Arthur Big Boy Crudup. Pooh! He recorded That's All Right, Mama. And later that year, Elvis Presley recorded That's All Right, Mama. Speaking of whitewashing from the last break, who do you think had the big hit? Elvis Presley. Elvis. Right. So, look, I'm going to play just a little bit of Peter, Paul, and Mary's Blowing in the Wind into Dylan, and that wraps it up. We're going to be back next week. We'll finish up 1963 and get as close to this new year as humanly possible. I'm Joe Burns. Tammy Burns. There you go. Class is dismissed. How many roads must a man walk down before they call him a man? Many seas 
must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas?